Good evening and welcome to another edition of Warrior Connection. We have a true American hero is going to join us today. He is my own personal American hero. He's a former military. He's in grad school at the University of Illinois. He uh, is absolutely incredible lifetime and what he's done so far, and we're going to see incredible things from him in the future. Garrett Anderson. Garrett, welcome to Warrior Connection, sir. Well, thanks for having me here. Um, yeah, I always say that my duty to my country, my duty to my service has always been a great one, regardless of what happened to me during my service. It would, even if I knew what would happen, I'd do it all over again because I love my country that much. Yeah, it's truly incredible. I mean, you were in Iraq. You survived that improvised explosive device. Yes, you did lose your right arm and all this stuff. But you came back from there, and you went on with your life. You start, got into college. You worked for a U.S. congressman trying to help the veterans of our nation. And now you're continuing on to do incredible things. How did you, how did you move on? How did you get through all this? I mean, tell us what happened in Iraq. And, I mean, what you're doing is incredible, Garrett. Well, um, well essentially, I was, a, I was a recon sniper in Iraq, and we were using a standard patrol mission. And so then um, one day we went out for a possible mortar landing. It was an ambush, and our our vehicle was struck by a roadside bomb, and I lost my arm and uh, broke my jaw in seven spots, and I had a mild traumatic brain injury. But when I was at Walter Reed, um, I had a, uh, a gentleman whose son sons were, one was an FDMY, uh firefighter one was a new york police officer and he told me and my wife he goes you know be successful and do stuff with your life because if by not doing that you're letting the terrorist win but if you're successful and you drive on and be a be a great american then you were we're we're essentially beating a terrorist every day well you sure have done it i mean what does it take i mean individuals talk about this and and ray ray can explain to you too ray was in the u.s marines in vietnam he's an author with his wife of the never-ending war on ptsd and ray you can explain i mean you both of you have gone through absolutely incredible traumatic events and you've gone on to total success Are there ray Doug, I think you were talking to me, but uh, I'm, I'm Ray Clark, and I'm glad to meet you. I'm, I'm honored to meet you today. Um, I came back from war also, but I wasn't uh, wounded uh, as far as losing a body part. But I was wounded in many ways, and um, that was back in 1970. And I began to move forward. And, um, you know, I, you find out, it's like you said, you can't honor your dead friends any better than having a good life. And uh, not only fighting terrorism, you know, by by achieving things, but also you honor your friends also. I couldn't agree more. I mean, just the mere fact, you know, we never leave a fallen comrade. And I think by being a an individual who doesn't want to achieve great things, you're you're. I almost think that you're dishonoring them by not going on and doing great things in your life. You know, I think I mean, it's so I agree. important That's a great because motivator. when you came back um, and you had all the trials Doug's, and tribulations. Uh, I guess his phone is messing this. up a little bit, but and, uh, maybe he'll be able to come back on. Doug, you're still there? Yes. Um, Doug? Okay, well, well, we'll just talk a little bit more. So uh, how did you begin to move on? What was the first steps you took? Um, you know, in, in beginning to recover. I know your family was 
probably horrified that you might fall in the same trap as a lot of other guys, but I'm sure they were relieved when you began to get up and start moving again. So uh, tell us a little oh, bit about they were. But my, my wife is a very strong-willed individual. I will first tell you that. My wife is uh, not somebody who will ever, like, let me fail. And so she's my biggest cheerleader. So I had that going for me that my wife was my biggest cheerleader to start with. Um, so she pushed me to do great things. And uh, by, by setting that standard, we knew that we were going to be successful merely because we were there for each other the whole time. So we didn't, and the word quit doesn't really exist in our vocabulary. So we really just want to honor our other veterans who passed away over there and even when they come back. Um, by just doing the right thing every day, um, we live, we're a very godly people. We, we believe in God. We believe that um, he, he's the reason we are where we're at today. Um, I think that God had a plan for me overall, and this is it. So um, it's all about having a, a, and a mission in life. I, uh, I, I can't ever lack the, the chance to say that I live my life every day as a mission. Um, and how I mean by that, I take that every day as a, as a new op order, a new mission to carry on and do things. That gives me a sense of purpose to carry on and drive on on a daily on a daily. That is so encouraging, too. I mean, the three of us, Doug, you, and myself, uh, are all three believers. And I wasn't always that way, but um, I, I got so bad off when I came home. One of the things happened to me was my, my platoon was wiped out. Out of 48 of us, we took 42 casualties one day, dead and wounded. And um, that was a culminating point. We'd taken a lot, my book is a combat memoir, and there's a lot of stuff in there. And by the time I came home, I was kind of numb from the neck up and started drinking pretty heavy and doing some drugs and got married, somebody I didn't even know, and you know things like that. And it's kind of a downward spiral. But later on, about 10 years later of living like that, um, I came to find Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then everything began to turn right there. And um, he is the motivator, I truly believe, for both of us and all three of us. Um, because God doesn't stand still. He wants to move us forward. And through that fellowship and through a good wife and a family, uh, there is hope for every veteran out there, no matter, regardless of what's happened to them. And uh, you're a testament of that. And I'll just continue on if you want to. Um, yeah, and so we just live our lives on a, on a daily, on a uh, way to just... And then another purpose is, helping other veterans out. I mean, if we're not helping each other out, we're only doing each other a disservice. So uh, we really fully believe that by helping other veterans out, it, it brings our life full circle to be able to to be, you know, I love the adage of just helping one person is a, is a success, and that's completely true. Um, that we're just by giving one, one soldier or one other veteran a hand up, that would be, that's enough for me to say, okay, I benefited one person's life and maybe he'll do the same. It's, it's a domino effect of our life that we're able to do that. You know, one I mean, of the things I think is so frustrating for so many veterans, I mean, you've gone on and we've gone on with our lives, tremendous success all the way around. But so many veterans come out of the wartime and the military time, they didn't have a good upbringing where they had a, a support system. And then they come back and they don't have a support system. And your support system, Garrett, is absolutely incredible. It doesn't get any better. Mm -hmm. How can people, 
deal with it when they don't have the support system in place that we've had and that you have? Well, and that's a very good question. They, uh, and a lot of times you get these soldiers who come back who may have that support system, but they push back on that support system, so they burn those bridges, essentially. Um, and we don't want that. I mean, uh, we want you, and so we just got to educate them on bringing your friends closer and bringing your family closer. And, you know, we all know that divorce rates among veterans are, are, are 50% higher than the regular population anyway. And so that's a real problem. So I, instead of, and the VA does this uh, very poorly, they'll treat the veteran, but they won't treat the family. Um, and that's where we're doing wrong. We're not bringing the families together and, and bringing this unity and this, this open front together, which we need to do. We need to find a way to, to fight this battle once we come home as a, as a unit or as a team or as a, a group instead of as an individual. So we have to work this as a family. And that's how me and my wife have done this. We, we took everything as a team. You know, one thing I've noticed, and knowing your family, you've got two absolutely gorgeous, incredible daughters that you're raising up to be incredible people. How is the impact of your life and what you've seen and what you've been through, and the fact that you lost your arm, but you go on as if it is not even lost, and I know that firsthand, how has that influenced or impacted your daughters? I mean, they themselves have to live a part of this, don't they? They know what's going on. Well, I was very fortunate in the fact that I lost my arm and then I had children. So the only thing my children's ever known were that, you know, I was an amputee or that I was a soldier. So I was very blessed in the, in the, in the, fact that, you know, my children, they embrace it, and they, they love that their dad's a little different than the, the other fathers that they deal with at school. So that's really what it comes down to is my children know nothing else. They just know that, I, you know, I'm the guy with the hook. So, um, and they're very good. They're great. I have some of the greatest kids in the world, and they're lovely, and they have the best hearts. And so I'm very lucky to have such great children. You were just Grand Marshal or Fourth of July Parade. How did that feel to lead a parade at a major community in a major university town? Yeah, that was really an honor of mine who, who gave me that. Um, who, who, you know, when they called and told me to that that I was going to be Grand Marshal, I was first I was floored, and I almost thought it was a joke um, that they did that. But and, you know, I was a Grand Marshal, and I was very lucky. I got to take my daughters on this vehicle with me, also. But, you know, I love my community I work in. I love the community I live in. And, and that's what really makes it really a good place for veterans around here, and even where I work, that our community embraces the military in a way where they make them feel at home. And so it was a pure honor. And, uh, you know, I love the fighting Illini, and I love where I work, uh, which is another transition, because I do work at one of the, I think, the best places in the world for transitioning veterans, which is the Chess Family Center for Wounded Veterans in Higher Education, where we assist these veterans in that transition from the military to higher education. That's totally unique. Do you work I mean, with uh, uh, wounded warriors or anything? Uh, what kind Center of military do you work with as far as do you have hands-on with them or do but you just encourage them? How does it make what, a difference? Do do? I mean, the University of Illinois is an extraordinarily difficult school for anybody at all, much less when you start dealing with the veterans. And I know when I came back, I was in grad school at the U of I, and you're in grad school now at the U of I. But when you come from war, right out of war, and you come back into school and college, 
it's an entirely different experience, entirely different world. What did you find, and what did you, what gave you the strength to be extraordinarily successful? Well, the the model that we use at the university is much different. Um, uh, we believe in a multi-fronted attack when we transition our veterans. Um, you just can't like give them the resources. You actually have to help them through the resources process. Um, we're not affiliated really with the Wounded Warrior Project. We're standalone. Um, alone at the University of Illinois, which um, if, if you are aware of the lineage and the history of disability services in the entire United States, it all started here with Dr. Nugent, who was a World War II veteran also. Well, uh, if you, it's the simple things as curb cuts or wheelchair accessible buses. That all started here. So what we're doing here at the U of I is we're building on top of that lineage that we already have existed. So now we get to, to help this next generation of students to make them the next great generation, which we're very fortunate to do. But it's more of a transitional service. So we have an individual transition classes for our veterans. We give them on-site um, psycho, psycho, psychiatrists psychiatry care, there's social workers, we give them resources for educational benefits and educational tutoring and anything like that. We also give them outlets to try to give back, get that sense of of um, a purpose back in their lives. And that's really what we do here is we have all these resources here for them to be successful in college, in which we have a 98% graduation rate of our veterans. That's astonishing. I work at uh, Kaplan June uh, uh, school as far as working with veterans and so uh, post-traumatic stress. I mean, the veterans and what I've I try to do is encourage them to they're, begin they're their life over by going subject. back to school. They're not coming I'm to trying to get education, and whether it's uh, you know some community college or college or tech schools or something. In other words, you have to get them with a goal, and you begin to move them forward, just like you're talking about. So I'm kind of recruiting them to try to go and do what you've done and uh, because you're a proven uh, example that it does work. It does, and you're absolutely right. We have to instill these sense of purpose and sense of education in our veterans. And, you know, college isn't for everybody. And sometimes veterans, um, you know, most of our veterans that transition to the University of Illinois are transfer students, uh, 80% to that number. 80% are transferring from a community college or some other place. So we're very fortunate in the fact that we have, said so they have some life under them, but we, this, when you talk about the University of Illinois, as Doug said earlier, this is a very, uh, we're a top uh, 50 college in the United States, public university. We're number 20, number 14. So the, the competitiveness to get into this university is very difficult. And the, the but what the teachers and professors and all these people are asking from these veterans are very difficult and very challenging. So we, we just try to give them every resource possible during this transition. Right. What kind of the professors that you've had in your academic undergrad and now grad school, how do they receive you as a veteran with a severe disability? Or do they just like all of us, well, it's just part of life, we'll just go on? Um, you know, the professors that I had to deal with, um, well, they're all really good. They realized, so we've built a lot of good relationships with our professors and our staff, to, and we educate them about veterans and the issues that may be there. Um, so very well. I mean, um, and they've actually found that veterans are better students, and, and, and they can actually lead discussions in classrooms. And so they really, they, I think they get excited when they have veterans in class because, 
they are they're already leaders. They've, they've been trained to be one of the best leaders in this country just by the military. And now they're in the classroom being an example for these other students. I know as a professor, those the military that I had and those that came back both on active duty and came to you know undergrad and grad courses and then came back afterwards, they just flat excelled and have gone on to wonderful careers. I mean, it is, I think it's something, you've learned discipline and you've learned have the ability to persevere, I think, isn't that two really crucial things? It is. I mean, and well, of course, one thing we have to do is teach them how to um, um, transition and, and, and take these new class, these new tasks and stuff like that. So it's difficult. It can be um, very difficult. So it's not bad, but it's just something we do. But um, they are good students. We tell them to be the leaders in the classrooms. So it works. And we're very fortunate to have such a great institution and great teachers and other students who are peer, peer, peer mentors to these students also. So we'll pair these newer students who are coming in with someone who's already been here a year or so. Um, 80% are transfer. Uh, about 20% of that 80% are actually graduate students or Ph.D. students. Um, so, and we have a lot in there in every field from, uh, from engineering to microbiology to nuclear science, nuclear engineering class also. So they're all over campus. That is really nice. What are you, you're, you're in social work. What is your graduate work and um, degree on? My degree is actually in rehabilitation counseling, which is, uh, where you would work with individuals with uh, recent or, or current disabilities to transition them to uh, employment. Boy, that's going to be neat. <laughs> There's a... And that's what we do here, too. We also offer availability for, which is, you know, I've always, we have this, you can give all the resources and all the tools they want for their undergraduate, but if we're not preparing our veterans for employment, so after graduation, then we're really doing all this for nothing. So what we're doing now is we're preparing these students with internships early on in their their collegiate career. So they have two or three internships under their belt before they even graduate. Um, So then by the time they graduate, they already have a job, and they're really just choosing which job to take. So we have one student who got a job with BP or Exxon and all these other great companies, or even the VA, where they're they're already employed before they graduate, so it's one less thing they have to worry about. And what you're describing is absolutely crucial because I know Reagan, doing myself, since because of the disabilities we had, we had to adjust and adapt not only our personal lives, we had to adjust and adapt our private lives, and we absolutely had to adjust and adapt our public lives and persona. And it's it it is very very difficult at sometimes. It's very difficult to transition, and um, it's it's just something that we deal with on a daily basis. And so we can't say that, um, and not everyone's transition is going to be the same. I always say that, that veterans are a little like fingerprints. Everyone's different, and they may not need every resource that every other re- – it's not a cookie-cutter style that we perform here. Not everyone gets the same services. You may need a little more of this one, 
a little less than this one. So we individualize our services and our care for our veterans to the veteran, not the veteran to the care. One of I the guess problems. some of your counseling, too, would motivate people uh, that are dealing with post-traumatic stress, which a lot of people consider a death sentence, but it's not. Um, you have to motivate yourself, and then uh, the spirituality part deals with the moral injury that you've received in in a spiritual way. But but um, post-traumatic stress, do you have much of that, uh, that you recognize it, and do you think this is a solution to most of that um, post-trauma? Uh, we have some individuals who are suffering from the post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress now that they dropped the D in the DSM. But, um, so there is that. I mean, we do have post-traumatic stress and stuff like that. And it could, and it could really resonate in different, different ways throughout, through the education process. It could be an anxiety issues. It could be different stuff. But we just have to give these guys the skills and the tools to work with those, um, yeah. like uh, how to deal with the anxiety issues and how to deal with the other issues to be able to still function because um, post-traumatic stress should not be a death sentence for anybody. You have to be able to to function in society, to be a part of society, and by by pulling yourself away from that kind of stuff, you're, you're, just, you're, you're signing yourself up for a death sentence. We want to integrate these guys into the community of the campus and make them feel like they're wanted also. Well, I found out one time, and I have to put a plug on this because you're dealing with a lot of veterans that, that do have problems sometimes, anxiety, panic attacks, those type of things which are, you know, come along with post-trauma. Uh, but I found out by accident that when you use a nasal inhaler, when just a simple nasal inhaler, you buy them from Walmart, um, it will actually, when you, when you sip on it, it opens up your sinuses, and then you can breathe well, well, and so you breathe in through your nose, and suddenly the panic goes away. It, it happens within a seconds, and um, you may want to even think about it sometime and maybe even suggest someone try that that is dealing with anxiety and um, panic attacks. But so mm-hmm. they're connected. But a lot of these veterans, if they could deal with, a po- with the uh, panic attacks, they could really excel in life because that that's one of the most da- uh, you know terrible things that a veteran has to fo- uh, has to face and uh, that's one of the things I wrote about in my book and I teach classes on that camp Lejeune for my own self I use it constantly when whenever a panic attack occurs and so maybe it's something that you can utilize also That's interesting. I just pulled that article up. I, well, I, after you start talking about that, I'm, uh, I pulled up the article so I can read about that. But that um, it's just a way to trick the mind, I think, uh, of how that's supposed to be done. But, yeah, I'll read more on that and uh, let our, uh, our behavioral health individual know about that. Why? And it happened after Vietnam, and it definitely happened in between. It happened after Desert Storm, and it's happened since. Why do so many veterans rely on alcohol and drugs and to get by anything? And why didn't you and your group get into that? How did you avoid that? I mean, I know what Ray and I did, but you're a different generation. How have you avoided know, the alcohol and drug it's trade? Still an issue. It's still an issue with some of our veterans. Um, the VA is all about giving drugs. They're starting to get away from that, but... Uh, this next, this generation, there's so much now uh, of data out there uh, that 
opioids don't work. Opioids have zero work, uh, zero effect on this kind of stuff. And the, the, the true knowledge that this is, um, that that's out there that, so they know to stay away from it. We still have those instances of people who are drink a lot and stuff like that or turn to illegal drugs. Um, but it's all about knowledge. And I think that a lot of these service providers are starting to get away from that and going into more of a, uh, herbal or holistic type type treatment because um, you know research and, and data has shown that that's more effective for these for this than anything else I mean if you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to just want to ask the question since you had a traumatic injury where you lost your right arm how does that affect you and pain and everything that gets around do you sense everything do you sense that it's there or it's not there I mean, you use it just as if it's a regular arm today, what I've seen, but for individuals who don't understand well, this, how does it come into play? Well, uh, the, the injury was a traumatic injury, so I still have phantom pain and phantom sensation. That may, I still feel my hands. Um, so there is pain, but from day one, I chose not to do the drugs, and, you know, the, the military gave me as much as I wanted if I wanted it, but I didn't want it because I knew that they gave me some stuff, and I'm like, you know, this is too too heavy, too much for me, and I just don't react well. And so I just made a conscious decision to, to deal with the pain um, my own way through uh, physical fitness or just day, ADLs, active day, um, day, um, activities of daily living and stuff like that. So it's... It would be a personal choice for individuals not to deal with that. And it was my personal choice. I didn't need to. So, But, you know, I still feel like my hand's there. I, I use a prosthetic daily. Um, but I'm used to that. So it's just uh, it's been 12, year, 12 to 15 years since my injury. So it's almost uh, day-to-day for me now. What is the technology as far as prosthesis where are they going to what have you got maybe you can explain that i mean because it seems like it doesn't bother you stop you from doing anything whatsoever from what i've noticed um prosthetics are moving forward um unfortunately knees and legs are about 20 years ahead of where arms are currently um so that is uh you know the leg amputees are 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 way ahead of where we're supposed to be because um, they have ankles and knees now that can sense different angles of, of the uh, have microprocessors in those where they can sense if, if the ground's uneven or you're going downhill or uphill, so the ankle will adjust. But the hands, it's a little bit more complicated. you got a little bit more going on there. I'm working with a group, Psionic, and um, in Champagne here, where they're trying to build a prosthetic where it gives you sensory feedback, So, um, which no other prosthetic does that. So if you essentially have sensors in three fingers, if you do grab something, it gives an electronic impulse to the skin so you can tell the amount of pressure that you're putting on it. There's a lot of great prosthetics out there. I use a, a body power, which is around since World War II, um, but it works for me, and I like it. Depending upon your, your amputation and where you're at with your, uh, your amputation, really will determine what kind of prosthesis you use because... The lower your MPC is, the more likely you'll use a more technical prosthetic. The higher it is, uh, elbow or above elbow, you may not even use a prosthetic at all because it's so cumbersome to have those. 
So yours is controlled then just by other body motions and muscles tightening and yes, loosening them up? controlled by a harness around my body, my shoulders. So it's like a brake in your bike. So the spring, the row bands hold shut, and my brake open and close it. Did that take learn, long to learn how to use? I mean, I've just, since I saw you and get it, I've known you, you just like automatically picked it up. But I mean, it, it didn't take long. When you have uh, to do it, you have simple. to do it, right? <laughs> we learned that in the military. Um, that was yeah. so valuable to you. I guess you had to achieve it real quickly. So we yeah. commend you for I, that. I had to tie my shoe with one hand, so. Just a personal note. Um, have you ever, Do you ever have triggers or do you ever have panic attacks or do you have any anxiety attacks or anything, um, which is um, common? But um, I know that you've moved on in spite of it. But do you still have problems like that? I do. Um, but my wife is really good at reading my body uh, gestures and um, facial expressions and how I act. So when we do are in the situations, we know to pull me out before someone gets hurt. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I still have those. And I'm, you know what? Still to this day, I take a different route to and from my house. Um, I won't take the same route the same day to and where I'm going because I, you know, when I was in Iraq, we tend to take different routes all the time. So, yeah, I mean, it happens, and it's just something we do. So, I mean, we just learn to deal with it, and so it's just it's ingrained in me. I think the neat thing about it, I mean, both you and I don't live very far apart. You live in a very small rural community where it's red, white, and blue flag waving and everything else. And whether we're out to the same restaurant together with our families, the support system seems to be kind of in place, isn't it? Isn't that kind of unique in comparison to other places? Yeah, I mean, that, that helps. I mean, even champagne is pretty good um, with the support services, you know what I mean? So... Uh, but yeah, that helps to have a community that just uh, who does that. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, I just think that we live in the heart heartbeat of America, and I love it where I live. And, you know, the weather sucks a lot, but I just love the community. You know, it's kind of interesting, Doug. Um, you know, we talk about Israel has one percent post traumatic stress. And the reason is because everybody in Israel has been to some kind of military training or they're all in the same boat, whereas, you know, America, uh, there's such a disconnect between society and military. But in those towns like you're talking about that y'all guys live in, you guys, I'm from North Carolina, um, it, it seemed to be, it helps a lot when people come together and you feel appreciated. And um, I think that's one of the problems with veterans, and it's it's good to know that uh, that these small towns they take care of their guys, and um, there's something the to neat, that. The neat thing, the transition since I did retire from the University of Illinois, I did both my master's and PhD there, especially where I have to come back from war. It's it's different today than it was before, and and that comes about from Garrett's work and all the work that other individuals that Garrett you work with and work with you today and continue to improve things. What's the future? Where are we going to in the future? Do we see? Are we um, going to see similar centers like the Chess Center, where you're devoting your life to to 
help other veterans in other schools and across the states? I see as um, not every school will have the funding that we have or the, the, the amount of money that we can raise. But what I do see is that uh, the way we build the best model, the best practices, or the um, the, the, the practice, so you know, the best models, essentially, for other universities to adopt. They may not have the center, but they could always adopt our pro- or what we do, um, or the or the the programs that we have. I, I see that we will build the, the models for all the universities that they can model their programs after. Now the Chess Center has actually in-bed facilities. How many how many severely disabled vets can the Chess Center house there at a current time? We can house up to 14 severely wounded veterans at a time. Um, now, the uh, problem is trying to get severely wounded people to, to leave their communities or their support systems to come to the University of Illinois. It's completely different, right? So that is a problem, but we have veterans with disability ratings who are here. We have 13 beds that are filled who are service-connected individuals with some kind of disability, be it visible or non-visible injuries. One thing we look at the veterans, and as Ray has mentioned, the moral injury for all of us, and as you know, we talked, the moral injury is, is a severe thing. When we went to Vietnam, we had one set of beliefs and understanding. And then we got something different in all the wars in between. And we went back to Desert Storm. We had one set of beliefs, and then we found out differently. And then you went in early for uh, after nine one one and all this stuff. Were you in the military before nine one one or afterwards? I was actually in Korea during nine eleven. Um, I was active duty with the two uh, ID in uh, Korea. Well, Korea is a hot point there. What did it feel like to be in a hot point? I mean, Korea, was it hot when you were there? And it's, it's still simmering, well, yeah. isn't it? The father was still alive when I was there back in 2001, 2000. Um, so but they still had our issues. Um, but whenever 9-11 hit, we were, we were locked in a lock cock and ready to rock on, on the post security. So we were running, um, you know, we had full magazines, uh, ready to, you know, whatever happened, whatever happened. So, but it was a good tour. I learned a lot in Korea. But yeah, it was one of those things that, you know, we were ready to go. And actually, for two or three years after I left, they actually deployed from Korea to Iraq. How long, how long were you in Iraq before everything went sour? Um, there about approximately six months before I got, before I was injured, um, which is about half my tour over there. And then, um, but you know, we were, we were well-trained and then my, the training saved my life. So we were very fortunate. What happened to the other individuals with you? Well, uh, nothing really. I mean, there's some, uh, People were shaking up some shrap metal stuff, but I was the only real serious injury in the entire truck. And so we're very fortunate that that, that was that way because um, there's two 155 rounds in the hole and only two were detonated. Um, so we were very lucky in that sense that um, the bomb wasn't as big as it was supposed to be. They medevac you then back to Landstuhl in Germany and then back to the States, or what was the pathway? Well, I got uh, first place. They took me to Diablo Grave Prison, where there was a level three cache, 
And then from that level three cast, they knocked me out, took me to launch stool in Germany, and then off to uh, Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. How did you? How long did you spend in Walter Reed? I was at Walter Reed for approximately eight months, but to me, that's where you know a lot of the um, transition stuff really happens because of the, um, the you know. What happened to me was a minor flesh wound compared to some of the other soldiers out there who are triple amputees or severe TBIs or um, like Jeffrey Mitten and a friend of mine in uh, Indianapolis. He lost most of his face. So I met some really great Americans when I was out there. You know, for all of us that have the disability, I mean, some in your case is very visible. In my case, as you know, it's not visible. Rays is not visible. How do we get an understanding? It's not like we're expecting anything or wanting, but we just have to adjust and adapt and move on. Mm-hmm. How do we well, get an understanding I mean, of what we've gone through and where it is and what the impact is? Well, I would almost relate that to a regular person with a disability. If you see somebody in a wheelchair, you don't treat, you don't treat them much different. I mean, if you do, that's you know you're you're. I mean, it's almost more insulting to, to be you do out of your way to be overly nice to someone. Just treat them like a, I had a professor in class. We were talking about first-person language. And I'm sure you guys are aware of first-person language when it's like to hear instead of a deaf person, it's a person with a hearing deficit or or a blind person. I go, well, I have a friend who's blind. I go, you know what I call him? So like, what do you call him? I go, I call him Jeff because that's his name. And if we start treating people by by their disability, we're doing them a disservice instead of just treating them like a regular person. I think that's really important things. I mean, we just had. I mean, we're we're doing this on Wednesday, so it's the twelfth, and the eleventh happened, and we lost a lot of good friends on that day. But when we look at all the events of war and combat, and whether it's here in the states or whatever it's else. The veterans got one perception, and what happens in the classroom? I mean, you get back into school, I mean, you're far older, you've gone through hell, you've come back out, you're successful. How did that interplay or interrelate within the classroom? It can be difficult because, let's say, um, if you think about these old brick-and-mortar buildings that we have to use, they don't have windows. And um, so if you are a, a... individual who has anxiety issues and as a veteran you want to know what's going on around you at all times especially after a combat situation so if there is an issue where a veteran has a a real anxiety issue or a a diagnosable disability with that we can actually have the whole classroom move somewhere else for that disability um, to make that one student more comfortable or and so it's all about making the and comfortable with the environment that they're in. Well, I know that uh, it's always been where liberal professors, uh, sometimes they didn't like God or sometimes they didn't like America or wars and such, and so they have very opinionated. But you have to be really, really uh, strong to um, to already know the answer to certain things, and um, and you're not affected by criticism sometimes. And it sounds mm-hmm. like to me you're really uh, grounded in a lot of different areas, and that's a good example to every veteran, uh, school or otherwise. And I, I commend you. I think you're doing a great job, man. 
Well, what's the old term? Knowledge is power, right? And so the more informed you are, the better you can benefit yourself and other veterans around you. Academically-wise, I mean, I know the difference when I came back as far as memory problems and mobility problems. I mean, I've got definite mobility problems. I've got definite, definite memory problems. How or what tools are out there to help the vets today to get by with those? I mean, the U of I campus is huge. I mean, going from one end to the other, I mean, you've got 10 minutes or 15 minutes between the class period. It can be a challenge. Yeah, that's why if they are mobility challenged, um, that's where our DRES um, program comes in, which is world-renowned, really. We're the first university in the entire United States to allow individuals with disabilities to attend higher education. And that starts with our Disability Resources Education Services, started by Dr. Nugent for World War II veterans. So we actually have a bus that will, if you have one class here, and, uh, and your next class is across campus for a short time, they will come to your to where you get dropped off, pick you up and take you to your next class if that's something that's needed to be done. Well, I asked you something a minute ago about uh, post-trauma, but Doug and I talked much about something called moral injury, and the VA has began teaching classes, but they don't teach about the spirituality part of it. And what I teach at Camp Lejeune is based on spirituality because it's a, a violation of your conscience. What you see or what takes place or what happens to you or you find out, you know, a lot of different things that you thought were one way and they find out they're another. And then the very atrocities of war. But uh, what I teach you is, is based on only God can actually heal your conscience. And you've already done that. And so there's no reason why you can't move forward. Uh, there's so many people out there hurting on the inside, and they don't know how to fix it, and they turn to drugs and alcohol as a self uh, uh, self way of uh, in, you know healing themselves. I can't think of what they call it, self medication. But sound like to me, you you've made so much progress, and and God is the one who gives you that stability and gives you a sound mind, and helps you to move forward. And sound like that's what you've done. And, uh, you've achieved a great deal and have so much more to give to veterans because you know the answers. Well, that's true. I think that, um, let's see, old saying, oh, there's no, uh, there's no atheist in foxholes, right? So, right. you know, if you don't have that, that, that drowning or spirituality, then, um, you will be lost and you will be wondering about what the purpose is. But if you can get that, we can get that spirituality back. To our veterans, even that's why I send my kids to a Catholic school because I like the spirituality of of my my children knowing the greatness that God is, the greatness that what we can we can do with the power of our Father. So that's the important part. And, well, right uh, now I'm still on the edge of a category, category four hurricane off the coast of North Carolina, and they're talking about. 24 to 40 inches of rain. That's what they just said on the radio <laughs> or on television. I'm sorry. They just said uh, the tracking a minute I ago. I told some people last night uh, that um, God can either calm the storm or He can calm you and let the storm rage. And I think through every through life we have battle after battle after battle, and that is uh, the stability. Just like you're talking about your children, uh, we teach them that, and they're going to have a better life. So I think it's great. 
I think, Garrett, maybe I'm wrong. I'm saying for the example you and your wife are giving to your children, I've seen you firsthand all over the place. It's totally unique. I mean, your children are seeing something coming up and being raised and everything. How how do we put that back into the generation? We talk about it all over in our community, and you've been in, in the conversations where the parents aren't totally involved in the children's lives and putting them out as an example, or they're a single-parent family, or the number of family members and everything involved in church has fallen apart. From your generation and everything where you're at, how how do you move forward, or how do we get others to move forward? I I, I mean, um, me and my wife have been going to the same church for 15 years, and uh, we were going there before I deployed to Iraq, and we we went there after I got back. Um, you know, we removed God from our schools. We removed God from every every part. I mean, that's our lobbyists, our, our you know certain leftist groups want to remove God from every sense. But at the end of the day. And nobody calls for for their checkbook. They call for God whenever something goes bad. How do we instill that in people? You know, that's a journey they must travel on their own. Um, we have our we all have our own journey to Christ, and so this is going to be their journey. Eventually, it's going to happen. It's just it may take longer for some other people. We all have bad days. Yeah. Get through, how do you get through a bad day? I mean, each of us have had a bad day, and all of us have supported each other, and Ray and I definitely support each other, and Garrett, you and I have done a little bit. But Garrett, how, how do you get through a bad day? What can we offer or suggest to the, those listening? How do you get through a bad day? You know, in October 15, 2005, I died three times on the operation table. Three times I died. I'm still kicking uh, a bad day is just what it is. It's a bad day. As I tell, when I go to motivational speak to schools or any community groups, um, a bad day is just what it is. It's, it's one day of your life. It's that one bad moment is not going to dictate the rest of your life. You have to just brush that day off, move on, move forward. But don't let that one incident dictate your journey because that's all it is, is one day. Ray we teach uh, in suicide prevention, um, a suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Most of your mm-hmm. bad days will pass, and then you it won't seem so bad. And you can usually do something to, um, you know, rectify it. So you're exactly right, I believe. Ray, you're sitting there hunkering down. You're right in the bullseye for this hurricane, aren't you? What are you thinking, or what are you planning? I'm not sure, Doug. <laughs> um, there's a lot of people, a million people in North Carolina have exited, but most of those live on the coast or low-lying areas. And, and in North Carolina is a lot of lowlands, and um, they do flood. There's uh, about three rivers connected, two river, big rivers that are connected to the city of Newburn, and then there's a lot of you know water around us and such and other rivers. And... Um, those rivers will back up. They're talking about 13 feet of uh, storm surge. And what that does, it backs those rivers up, and it goes everywhere. In uh, the city of Greenville, which is about 50 miles from me, the home of uh, ECU, uh, East Carolina University, uh, 
the last time they had a flood down there, Floyd, I think it was, the water was up in the second floor apartments of the uh, dorms and uh, on the college, and so it was everywhere. Around here, there were pigs and you know animals and everything floating around everywhere. There were caskets floating that came up out of the ground, and this one's supposed to be a lot worse than that one was. And so uh, we live in a very hot, kind of a high area. Uh, we have a lot of supplies. We prepared a lot, very good for this storm. And, um, you know, I guess I'm faced with a thing that uh, knowing from past hurricanes that they wash out bridges and highways and everything you can think of, forest. And so if you do leave, it may be a month or so or maybe two months before you can come back home again. So it kind of makes you want to stay home if you possibly can, and that's what my wife and I have decided to do. We're not on the coast. We're about 35 miles from the coast. But, um, yeah, we're looking down the barrel of a double-barrel shotgun, look like. And, um, you know, we pray and we just ask God to be with us and give us wisdom and help us. And I don't know what, Doug. You, you prepare yourself, and that's the biggest. That's a big plus for you, um, just being prepared. So uh, I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> is Camp Lejeune pretty much shut down, evacuated, or what are they doing there? Are they hunkering down? I mean, no, well, I yeah, the classes have, were canceled. Uh, Fort Bragg, all those. Uh, I got a granddaughter. Her husband's at Fort Bragg. And she said, you know, they, they take very well care of you on that base. And uh, she got two, uh, three little children, and they do watch out for you and such. But North Car- I mean, uh, Newburn right now and Jacksonville, I just came back from Jacksonville, Everything is shutting down. I mean, there's very few parking lots with cars in them right now because everything is beginning to hunker down. And, um, you know, it's like getting ready for a car wreck. You don't know how bad it's going to be, but you hope and you pray and you kind of be vigilant. And the military taught us, you know, I, I talk about the Marine Corps, taught me it's better to have something and not need it than to need something and not have it. And that's kind of the attitude you take when you're preparing because... There's so many variables, so many things that could happen. But uh, you try to. Last night we were we were at a prayer meeting. I had uh, at our church, and there was a a lot of people there, and just asking God for help and um, wisdom. They have some of them have farms. They have horses. They have a lot of animals. They have, and you just can't can't walk away from what you have as those animals because somebody's got to take care of them. So it's, it's a difficult time. But uh, we rely heavily on the Lord and um, and then trying to be wise and prudent about things. Garrett, were you living in Gifford when it get hit by the tornado, or did you move there afterwards? I actually moved uh, to Gifford uh, two years after the tornado hit in Gifford. I was living in Champaign at the time. I can remember that Gifford tornado. It really, really tore that town up. I mean, um, essentially, it's a brand new town since the tornado. Um, so, but yeah, but it, so they have a new water tower, so that's exciting. So, but no, I mean, that tornado really did just tear the town up. And that whole town, I know because we all know each other, we've all got friends and family there. I mean, it's gone on to make it and do successful, hasn't it? It has. I mean, they, 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 they have enough people and they're doing really good things there. So, um, it's still off the beaten path, so it's not like a, a touristy spot. But got Gordyville down the road, and and all this kinds of other stuff. But so it, it they've done really well. So 
um, for that. Well, I think that's the same thing. And, again, we're looking to the same thing, family helping family, or what you described at the Chess Center. You guys are family helping family, other veterans, or in your community. I mean, in Gifford with a tornado, family helping family. And what I mean by family, I mean everybody coming together. And, Ray, that's kind of where you're at right now. Isn't that what's going to have to happen? Yeah, it's, everybody comes together. Everybody watches out for each other. When something happens, everybody runs to where the problem is and tries to fix it. And um, so you have a little comfort in, in all that, you know, that you're not, you're not by yourself. Uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, when our guest is talking about the family, I often talk about when you join the military, uh, you develop a new family, and they try to have the camaraderie so strong that you actually give your lives for each other. And when you do that, you have two families. You have one in the military, you have one at home, and generally the one you're with, when you're with one of them, you want to be with the other one. Uh, that's the way it works sometimes, but it's a very powerful thing when, you, um, when you're with people that can get your back sometimes, and that's what we depend on here, too. So, Gary, are you still in touch with any of the people in your unit that you went over with? I mean, both the two um, of us definitely are. You or where is that it? Um, we were a National Guard Guard unit. Um, but, yeah, every year we get together, we have gatherings. So we have a thing called the Alive Party that we celebrate today. I died on the operation table. Um, so, yeah, we get together, we communicate. Facebook's really great about that. So we stay in touch and talk to each other a lot. We're a very close group. I mean, I know for you it was frustrating when you first came back because you had a problem getting your disability and getting all that lined up. Yeah. What can you um, offer to the uh, veteran to get through that? I know all of us work on that, and we've had incredible problems getting proper medical care or recognition or anything. I mean, you got through it, and you got a lot of good help. I got very lucky. I mean, obviously, there's a... I got lucky with what I, with my life. I got lucky with my marriage. I got, I mean, sometimes luck is a good way to go about it. Um, think about it that way. But I got very lucky with my situation. And I just take it every day as a, as a gift. Um, and life is a gift. Theoretically, I mean, we are, are very lucky to be alive. We're very lucky to to be on this great earth and this great community and this great country. And I think we lose sight of, of the gifts in our lives, and we want to see the negative things that are happening in our lives. I want to see the positive things. So, and that's the way I see things. I, I see the positive things. I see what, what the benefits that have happened to me. And so I like it. I mean, I, I think if everyone looked at, at their life as a gift, and every day is a gift to, to impact somebody else's life. I have two young daughters that I am their biggest influence of how successful they're going to be. So every day I, I do something is to benefit them later in life. I mean, one thing and a neat thing, and again, we're just about out of time here, but your wife and your kids not only support you, but you definitely support your wife because we just saw that as total evidence because your wife ran for office here, and we were all supporting her. But that's... That, that's unique and different. I mean, there's something we got to put out more to everybody where it's a whole family and each other supports each other, don't we? Yes, I think that's it. I mean, we're doing very good. We do a lot of stuff that we will be moving forward, and that's how you have to do it. Ray, you talk about this all the time. The number of veterans that 
divorce and failure in alcohol is, is staggering. Where is it going to? I mean, we're hearing what can happen and how good it can do. Garrett is a perfect example of the best of the best and where it can go for every veteran. How do we get the other veterans into this into this track? I guess one at a time, Doug, and it takes men that are committed, uh, like, like Eric and my, you and myself, and and I work with veterans all the time, trying to encourage them and trying to keep their families together, and and uh, try to you know one part of my book was about the wife of a patient with severe post traumatic stress, where my wife wrote it, and it's about learning about the symptoms and learning about the causes, and then you're able to do uh, face things as a family. And when you walk together as a family, just like I was thinking about his wife in politics, there's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of things come with politician or politic. Um, and so you have to be really solid as a family in order to fight those things. And um, you keep focused, keep moving forward, fear God, love God, honor God, love each other, love your neighbor, and you can make it. Well, Garrett Addison, American hero, God bless you. Thank you very much continue to do great things for the veterans of our nation at the University of Illinois, and we're going to see more vets succeed very well as you have done. God bless you, Garrett, and thank you very much, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Ray. Yeah.